0: over the previous year, uh, and to to, together grieve uh, sorrows that you've faced, uh, to celebrate joys that you've experienced, and to give thanks to God for his faithfulness to us in the midst of it all. Um, Maybe together we could reflect on what God taught us through his word this past year, as we faced our creatureliness in Genesis chapters one through three, as we learned how to pray from the Ten Commandments during the season of Lent, uh, as we wrestled with the brevity of life in the book of Ecclesiastes, as we heard Paul's passion for Christ even in his last days in the book of Second Timothy, some of those you're like, "Oh yeah, I forgot that we studied those." Um, maybe it's worth taking a few moments this afternoon or tonight to look through some of the notes that you took, but more importantly, to stop and consider how did God shape your life through the teaching of His Word in 2023. So it's a natural time to look back and um, to give thanks for the past year, but also to prepare our hearts for the new year as we embrace a new annual focus for 2024, and that is welcome the heart of Christ. Uh, You heard me talk a little bit about this when we first started the book of Luke in the beginning of December, but here's the fuller statement behind that. It says, as we experience Christ's welcome, like of us, In the gospel of Luke, through his birth, life, death, resurrection, and ascension, we follow in his footsteps by embracing unity and hospitality, by opening our lives and homes to one another and to those far from God. So as we walk through the gospel of Luke, we will experience the very welcome of Jesus Christ as he gives himself to us, through his birth, which we've already begun to reflect on during Christmas time, uh, through his life, through his death, through his resurrection, through his ascension. Uh, And you'll see this language of welcome used uh, several places in Luke, like in chapter 9. It says, when the crowds learned it, they followed him and he welcomed them. Or you'll see Jesus speak of himself as a Uh, like a host of a great feast, and say things like, and the master said to the servant, go out into the highways and hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. So you'll see this theme pop up as we go through the book of Luke. And as we embrace Christ's welcome of us, we want to see that extend to our lives this year. As Paul says in the book of Romans, therefore welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. So we want to welcome one another as brothers and sisters in Christ into our lives and into our homes this year. Uh, You know, sometimes I worry that we're still experiencing a bit of a post-2020 social-political chill in the church, too, where we've learned over the past couple of years to keep each other at arm's length because of differences over this and that. And we follow the world's example of polarization and isolation over secondary issues rather than warmly welcoming and embracing one another even as we work through those issues. And if we cannot welcome one another, what hope do we have of offering the welcoming presence of Christ to the world around us? How can we compel them to come into the family of God? So that's another thing that we'll pray about tonight at 6 o'clock. So join us, uh, if you can, as we pray for God's help in those matters. But in our passage for today, uh, we start to get from the book of Luke a clearer picture of just who it is that's doing the welcoming into God's family. Who is Jesus, or to put it more pointedly, who does Jesus think that he is? Uh, We sometimes ask this rhetorically when someone seems to have exceeded their authority, right, or or their right to speak on a given subject. They'll say, who who do you think you are? But I mean it literally. Who does Jesus think think that he is? That is, what is Jesus' self-understanding? What's his self-perception, even as a boy of 12 years old? Now, most modern-day biographies and even ancient biographies would spend a good bit of time on someone's childhood. We want to know. About great people's early years, whether you're a baseball fan or you follow, you know, famous people through history, biographies tend to spend a good bit of time on their childhood, uh, their first influences, what first formed them, why were they the way that we were. But we hardly get any of that from the biographies of Jesus, from the New Testament Gospels. They all seem to be much more interested in the end of Jesus' life than its beginning or his childhood, Out of the four Gospels, only in Matthew and Luke do we get the birth stories of Jesus. And only in Luke do we get anything at all about his childhood years. And it's this one brief story about him in the temple and a brief summary about his entire childhood, which was he grew, (laughs) which probably means the early years of Jesus' life were largely unremarkable, perhaps, as in kind of normal now uh, a common objection or barrier to faith in christ for many people is the the idea that you know okay um sure jesus christ may have been a real person may have been a good person and he may have been a wise teacher but the idea that he could do miracles and that he was the son of god surely that evolved over time as legends about his life circulated and eventually the gospels were written many many years later to enshrine those legends So how can we really know what the real Jesus was like? And on one hand, I'd like to say that that's a very valid concern. Uh, And it does seem to happen in history, in various accounts of Jesus' life and childhood, they sprung up later, that are rather spurious. And the early church actually rejected those accounts. Like in the infancy Gospel of Thomas, for example, written a century after Jesus' day, um, in, in that gospel, the boy, or so-called gospel, the boy Jesus uh, makes clay pigeons into real birds uh, as a child. And he transforms rude children into goats, uh, but later restores them when they learn their lessons. So, you know, it's Jesus, can't be too harsh, right? Uh, and he even stretches a piece of wood that his carpenter father Joseph cut too short which if a carpenter was writing a gospel, you know, I mean, that would be truly awesome if you've ever experienced that particular frustration of woodworking. Uh, so on one hand, this legend creep about the life of Jesus certainly happens later in the centuries. So then on the other hand, what makes us think that the gospel of Luke, what he's telling us, is historical and accurate? Well, there are several reasons, but I'll just kind of center on one for now. For one, this account, the Gospel of Luke, is written early, much earlier than any of those other spurious accounts, soon after the events happened, within the lifetime of the eyewitnesses who could dispute the facts. I mean, it's one thing to write a biography about a famous person uh, two or three hundred years after the fact. You can almost say anything you want, which is how many ancient biographies, that's when they were written. But to write a definitive work on a figure within a few years of the event invites scrutiny. And for historical standards, for a book to be written, published, and so well circulated within a handful of years of the events themselves is like an ancient newsflash. And this is long before the age of cable or smartphones or social media. And we think Luke's gospel was likely written within the lifetime of the eyewitnesses for for several reasons. One, his second volume, the book of Acts. So Luke and Acts, they're a two-parter. And in the book of Acts, he doesn't even mention the death of key figures like Paul or Peter, while he does mention the death of some lesser figures like James, the brother of John. In fact, if you read the book of Acts, it kind of ends in the middle of the early Christian movement with Paul in, under house arrest in Rome. And if Paul and Peter were martyred in the mid-A.D. 60s under Nero, which other historical sources attest to, it at least begs the question, Why Luke wouldn't mention those major plot points if writing later after that time? So that's one reason we think it's fairly early. Additionally, scholars like F.F. Bruce and others have argued that the earliest physical manuscripts that we have, pieces of paper, point back to these Gospels most likely being written in the first century, within the lifetime of those who experienced the events And then finally, Luke himself tells you at the beginning of the letter that his sources were based on eyewitness testimony. Now, of course, it's up to you to believe him or not on that, but you shouldn't just uh, write all those things off without giving it a fair shake. So, who has the real take on Jesus? What's the original historical version of Jesus? The New Testament Gospels claim to have it, and historically speaking, they're the only ones written soon enough to back that claim up, and in this story, Luke's going to give us Jesus' take on himself as a twelve-year-old boy. Specifically, Luke's going to show us from this episode in Jesus' life uh, his identity, his priority, and his humanity. Luke's one, he wants to show you Jesus' identity, his priority, and his humanity. So let's work our way through the passage, first looking for Jesus' identity. So the story begins with Jesus' family uh, following Jewish law and traveling, it seems like this was their practice, every year from Galilee to Jerusalem for the Feast of Passover, where if you know that story from the book of Exodus, they would remember and celebrate God's deliverance uh, from slavery in Egypt and passing over their sins because of the blood of a lamb that was killed and smeared over the, the doorpost. And they would stay for about a week in Jerusalem before returning home. Now, as you're looking at the passage, if you've never left a kid behind somewhere before, it's easy to judge Mary and Joseph super hard right now, you know. Uh, How do you lose the Son of God on your family trip? I don't know. I thought he was with you. (laughs) But anyone who's left a kid behind knows that this can happen to the best of parents Uh, Not to mention that Jesus is not like six years old. He's 12 years old at this point. And I think 12-year-olds in this day and age carried a little more responsibility back then than they do now. And families also operated in larger groups than just the nuclear unit, you know, aunts, uncles, cousins. But once they realize that they've lost him, of course, they begin searching everywhere until they can find him. They returned to Jerusalem uh, looking everywhere among their relatives and ac- acquaintances on the road and then back in Jerusalem. I like, but I like what Thabiti Anyabwile says here about parenting. He says, sometimes responsible parenting is better seen in how you respond to your failings than in your successes. Jesus had good parents, he didn't have perfect parents, but when they made a mistake, <laughs> they did their best. But after three days, They find him. Maybe that's three days searching in Jerusalem. Maybe that's a day's journey away, a day's journey back, and then they find him on the third day. Not sure. But they find him in the temple of all places, mixing it up with the teachers of the Jewish scriptures, and he's in there uh, asking penetrating questions, giving profound answers. Clearly, Luke's point is that Jesus is not an ordinary student. He has wisdom and understanding And these echo what Isaiah said would be true of God's Messiah in Isaiah chapter 11. It says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, who is the great king David's father, Jesse. And a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding. The spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Luke's building a case. For Jesus' identity here. And when his parents find him, Mary asks a very natural parental question <laughs> Why did you treat us like this? <laughs> you know, if you've ever lost a kid or they ran off, what, why did, what did you do that for? Didn't you know we were worried sick about you? Uh, and Jesus' response, though it's brief, gives much information about his identity or who he understands himself to be. You know, and some parents keep a log of the zany stuff that their children say. Uh, Ash and I started an iCloud shared note where we can type things in that when our kids say things that are uh, remarkable, though none of them bear mentioning here and now. Um, But this saying apparently stuck with Mary as well. It says that she treasured up all these things. She kept a record of what Jesus said in, in her heart. And so here we get Uh, Jesus' very first recorded words. So from any gospel, this would be chronologically the first thing that we know Jesus says. And he says in Luke 2, 49, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my Father's house? And here you get your first clue as to Jesus' self-understanding of his identity. He refers to God as his father. Now uh, that may not strike you as very interesting today. We pray our father in heaven. Uh, it's common to hear us refer to God as our, as, as our father, but that's because of Jesus and what he did and how he taught us to pray. And that day and time for someone to say, God is my father, would have landed much more radically. So Luke continues to give these not-so-subtle hints along the way in his story as to the identity of Jesus Christ. We saw in the very first chapter of, of Luke, Luke 1.35, it said he would be called Holy, the Son of God. And again, in the second chapter, Jesus is presented in Luke chapter 2, verse 11, as a Savior who is Christ the Lord. But now you get from Jesus' own lips his declaration that God is his Father. And he's implying that he has a a natural connection, a native intimacy with God. And perhaps this is in contrast and superseding to when Mary says, why did you do this to us? Your father and I have been searching for you. Jesus says, did you not know that I must be in the house of my father? My, My true father, implication. I was following the will of my true father. So he's very clearly implying that he has a unique, special connection and relationship with God, uh, showing a level of self-awareness and self-understanding, even at age 12, that he is the Son of God. Twelve-year-olds have been known to say some pretty bold things. That's a bold statement. (laughs) But it's the consistent claim of Jesus across his life. The very first words in the Gospel of Luke, And Jesus' very last words in the Gospel of Luke refer to God as his Father. This is why C.S. Lewis made his famous remark. He said, I'm trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says that he is a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that option open to us. He did not intend to. Son of God, Messiah, Savior of the world. This is who Luke tells us the real Jesus is. This is who Luke tells us Jesus understood himself to be. This is why he gives us this story from Jesus' childhood, to clarify his identity. But Jesus says more. Notice not just his identity, but his priority. Luke 2 49 again. He says, I must be in my Father's house. Uh, Some some of your translations will render this, I must be about my father's business. um, Or I must be about my father's matters. And it's really the same idea either way that you translate it. He's saying, I must be with my father. I must be doing the things that my father's doing. I must be on about the things that my father's about. Now, this is interesting. From the age of 12, Jesus has an irrepressible sense of mission to his life. He says, I must be doing my father's bidding. It's what I had to be doing. Uh, And it's not the last time he's going to say something like this. Over and over through Luke's gospel. Chapter 4, verse 43, he said, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. Luke chapter 9, he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and on the third day raised. That must happen. Luke chapter 19, when he meets Zacchaeus, he says, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. Luke chapter 32, I tell you, this scripture must be fulfilled in me, must be fulfilled in me, and he was numbered with the transgressors, for what is written about me has its fulfillment. After his resurrection, Luke chapter 24, he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. That everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. So that was and is Jesus' priority to do the bidding of his father. To be about his father's business. Now it's interesting, in this story, Jesus' commitment to that priority caused his earthly parents some distress. You know, again, 50 and 51. And they they don't understand why he answered this way. They're looking everywhere for him. And they, they don't understand why he responds in the way that he does. But he's surprised that they were worried. Didn't you know what I would be doing? Didn't you know where I would be? It's a profound question. They don't understand it at first. Mary will ponder it. And I think it's a question worth pondering for us too. Because I wonder if sometimes we tend to look for Jesus in all the wrong places. We find ourselves distressed with him at times. Where are you? Why have you treated us so? And we tend to think that Jesus should be somewhere on our path, in keeping with our plans, on our agenda, on our timeline, and somewhere on our priority list. But Jesus is not your therapist, nothing against therapy. He's not your life coach. He's not trying to get you up to your 100% best self, like something you could just add to your life, like CrossFit or eating healthy. Jesus may have a whole different set of priorities than you do in your life. And if we don't understand that, I wonder if we'll always be a little frustrated, disappointed, and even distressed by Jesus. Why are you doing this? How could you let this happen? Not knowing. He's always got the bigger picture in mind. He's always about his father's business. And if you want to find Jesus, you better look there. Now, all that to say, it's not as if Jesus doesn't care about your life and the details of it. I don't mean to sound like that's what I'm saying. He cares for you infinitely his father's business was for him to be the sacrifice for the sins of the world, yours and mine. Some 20 years later, he would return to the temple on Passover, not to converse with the teachers of Israel, but to be condemned by them. And at that Passover, on the cross, Jesus would be our true Passover lamb whose blood covers our sins. His business and being in his father's house is good news for us. It meant saving us welcoming us into God's family. That's the measure of his love for you. He cares for you dearly. But it doesn't mean that he operates with the same priorities that you do day to day or on the same timelines as you or I. Perhaps you found yourself distressed by Jesus because you've been thinking that he should be attending to your business rather than you finding him being about his father's business. That's where he's going to be. And it's worth evaluating in this new year, 2024. You know, is my goal in 2024 to be more comfortable, to be more successful, to be healthier, just overall better, not necessarily bad goals, but are they God goals? Will we be about our Father's business in 2024? about the business of seeing people near and far reconciled to him, that's where we'll find Jesus. That's what he's up to. That's his priority, his father's business. But then last in this story, we also see Jesus' humanity, his humanity. And Luke, he does a masterful job throughout the book showing how Jesus is both the son of God but also is deeply and truly human, So look at the last verses of our our section. He says, And he went down with them, so from Jerusalem, which was higher in elevation, down and came to Nazareth, and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. One of Luke's purposes in giving us this little bit more of information about Jesus is that He's not a distant, cosmic, uninterested deity, unmoved by the happenings of humanity. Jesus became one of us. He's lived like us from day one of his life here on planet Earth. So that means he's familiar with the challenges of childhood. It means he's familiar with the troubles of adolescence. Students, Jesus knows what it's like to have a zit to grow underarm hair, to feel awkward. He even knows what it's like to have to submit to parents that just aren't up to his level. And I know all of your parents here probably aren't as smart as you either. They just don't understand life, really. Well, you know what? (laughs) Neither did Jesus' parents. And yet if the Son of God... Could honor and obey his imperfect earthly parents. What should you do with yours? Now, if you're not catching my drift, the answer is you should submit to them. (laughs) Your parents are an extension of God's authority in your life. We learn to submit to Him by submitting to them. Now, of course, it's possible that some of you may have parents that would ask you to do things that are not right. And if that happens, it's better to obey God than to obey your parents. But for the most part, (laughs) children are called to obey their parents. Even the Son of God led a life of submission to them as a teenager. But Luke's overall summary of Jesus' younger days is this. He grew. Thank you. 30-ish years of God living among us, summarized in a single sentence. He grew. He increased in wisdom and stature and favor with God and man. What does this mean? It means just what it sounds like. As a human, Jesus learned. He had to apply himself. He had to pay attention. He had to work to memorize scripture. He had to stretch. He had to listen. He had to learn to swing a hammer and not bust his thumb. Probably by swinging a hammer and busting his thumb. He had to learn to count, to add and subtract. He had to learn to measure flour and calculate angles for boards. He had to develop mentally and emotionally. This is strange for you to think about. Do you think of Jesus as just preloaded? like the Matrix, with all the knowledge, you know, about the world that he needed to have. But as a human, he submitted himself to the experience of learning and of growing. Donald McLeod said he was born with the mental equipment of a normal child, experienced the usual stimuli, and went through the ordinary process of intellectual development. But think, think about even this short sentence, Jesus grew and wisdom, and stature, and favor with God and men. Think about how much this dignifies the daily lives that we lead as humans. How much it dignifies your common labor and tasks. Jesus didn't skip out on those things. He actually spent most of his time here on earth doing the normal stuff of life and being shaped by it. God created us to grow bit by bit. He could have made us to mature like an African killifish. Two or three weeks after they hatch from an egg, they reach their full size of four to five centimeters and they begin reproducing. But God didn't make us that way and he didn't come to us that way either. He embraced every part of our nature so he could perfectly understand and represent and redeem us all. Now, to be fair, I'm not sure how all this works out. How God can be God and man simultaneously and learn and live and yet be Lord of all, it's a mystery, but I'm sure glad it's one that he undertook because this means something wonderful and profound for our understanding of Christ. It means he sympathizes with you in every way. The book of Hebrews chapter four says, we do not have a high priest or a representative who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So what should we do with that? Well, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Jesus can and Jesus does sympathize with your weaknesses. He was even tempted in every way. So he gets it. He knows what it is to be human in all of its joy, and all of its sorrow. And he's eager to help us. Uh, Damien Spikeret he uh, wrote a moving story from his life as, as a young man. He says, when I was in high school, my father passed away rather suddenly. It was just two days before my high school graduation. At that time in my life, I was a baby Christian, immature and shallow. I was still drying off the baptistry waters. All I cared about was not going to hell. But then, my dad died. I found myself in a place I'd never been before, and I wanted to hear God speak. I wanted to know what he had to say about this situation, and how he was gonna get me and my family through this difficult time. So I prayed, and I waited for God to speak. Then came the day of the funeral. The church was packed. I sat on the front row with my mother and two younger sisters. The Lutheran priest spoke, but I don't remember what he said. I continued to wait for God to say something. And then the service was over. It was the tradition of this church to have the family line up in the foyer. Everyone would file past us and offer words of condolence and encouragement. Tears were shed, hugs were offered, and words were given. I don't remember what anybody said to me in that time, but I continued to wait for God to speak. Then I saw Kim O'Quinn. She was my age. We were in the youth group together. When she got to me, she didn't say a word. She had tears in her eyes, and she simply hugged me and walked off. But I heard God speak. It dawned on me. Just months before, I had attended another funeral, the funeral for Kim O'Quinn's father. In that moment, she knew exactly what it meant to be me. He goes on to say, if you want to hear God's voice in your life, look no further than the one who knows exactly what it's like to be you. He knows what it is to be human. He knows what it is to suffer. He knows what it is to be rejected. He knows what it is to be human. Jesus Christ is not only God's Son, on God's mission. He's also, in some mysterious way, one of us. He can relate. As one poet put it, the other gods were strong, but thou wast weak. They rode, but thou didst stumble to thy throne. And to our wounds, only God's wounds can speak. And no other God has wounds, but thou alone. Let's pray. So Lord, this morning we want to do what the book of Hebrews invites us to do, to draw near to you, the one who truly gets us. Uh, For all of us, in one way or another, are are in a time of need. Uh, Maybe some of us feel that more than others today, but all of us are in a time of need. We need your help. So in your kindness, would you let this, uh, this teaching from your word that you are empathetic to us, that you get us, and you desire to help us, would all those things cause us to draw near to you? So often in our lives, we try to deal with the struggles of being human by drowning our sorrows in some other way, distraction, ignoring them, some of those ways pretty destructive. Would you give us grace today to bring them to you? to draw near to you so that we can receive your help and your mercy, which as God, you have the power to give. As man, you understand us, how badly we need it. So may we draw near to you today to seek you as the God who sees and understands and hears and loves. Through Christ we pray. Amen.